Hi, Frontline listeners. I'm Rainey Aronson, executive producer of Frontline. Today, we're sharing episode two of Frontline's first ever multi-part investigative podcast series. It's called I'm Not a Monster. We made the show with our partners at BBC Sounds and BBC Panorama. I'm Not a Monster is the story of an American family's journey from Indiana to the heart of the self-declared ISIS caliphate and back. We'll be publishing the first few episodes of the story here. To listen to the rest of the series, subscribe to I'm Not a Monster wherever you get your podcasts. And now, episode two. Before we go any further, there are some descriptions of violence and some upsetting moments involving children in this episode. My story? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It is very difficult to believe. It is very hard to believe. I had a feeling that she was in some sort of trouble. And then she sent me the email telling me that they were in Raqqa with the kids, and she didn't know how much longer she could last. What do you do if you hear a helicopter and American pigs come down? I'm going to walk out and say, Come save me, come save me. My name is Matthew. I'm American. Come save me, come save me. Whatever I've done, anything I've ever done is only with the intention of something good to happen. I'm not a bad person. I'm not a monster. I'm looking at a video of a young boy sitting on a motorbike. It's twice as big as him, but he's got a huge grin as he revs the engine. That's Sam cheering. Rub it up, Matthew! The boy is her son, Matthew. It was filmed before they left the US and ended up in the ISIS caliphate in Syria. Matthew looks happy, relaxed, like he's living an ordinary life in a loving family. I'm searching online, trying to find out anything I can about them. There are pictures of Sam, tall, blonde hair and tattoos, and photos of sports cars and motorbikes, and even a helicopter ride. In another video, Matthew dances while watching a cartoon. But there's one in particular that stands out more than all the others. It's filmed on a driveway in suburban Indiana. Matthew has been given a new bike, which has been painted to look like a dinosaur. Are you recording? Yep. All right. This is a special present for a little monster who lives in a bedroom and, I mean, in our house. And he. What do you wow. think, Matthew? Do you like it? Yeah. Oh, you better give Moose a big hug. Thank you so much. You're welcome, buddy. You're yeah. my best friend. That male voice you can hear is the same voice I'd heard in a very different video of Matthew being forced to build a suicide bomb. Go. Take this fuse out. That's an American grenade. That's a five-second fuse. It's Musa, Matthew's stepfather. The video had been emailed to Sam's sister, Laurie, along with another, where Matthew was made to take apart a loaded gun. Without a single mistake, mm-hmm. take apart this loaded AK mm-hmm. and put it back together in less than a minute. Ready, set, go. Put it with force, like a man. Watching these videos 
is like looking at two parallel lives. One comfortable in America, with a young boy laughing and joking with his stepdad. The other, thousands of miles away, in the middle of a war zone, the same man apparently grooming the same boy to carry out a terror attack. I'm Josh Baker, and from BBC Panorama and Frontline PBS, this is I'm Not a Monster. Episode 2, Read Between the Lines. Islamic State has no borders. It's an ideology of hate that's spreading across the world from its headquarters in the city of Raqqa in Syria. Brussels on alert tonight. Christmas market in Berlin. Horrific attacks in the streets of Paris and Istanbul. Public executions in Raqqa are commonplace. Clear life is a living hell. And what's more, they're being bombed. Sam, Matthew and his little sister are in Raqqa, the city the Islamic State group calls its capital. They've been there for almost two years. They execute captured prisoners. They kill children. They enslave, rape, and force women into marriage. It has to be eradicated just off the face of the earth. This is evil. This is evil. Sam's put her sister Laurie in touch with a man called Florian. She says he's a people smuggler and he's helped others escape ISIS. Laurie's talking to him on WhatsApp. Forgive me for my English. My English is not good because I didn't learn English in the school. I learned by myself. But inshallah will be get better, inshallah. I was so nervous. I didn't know what to say. I had no idea what was going to happen or what to expect. So this man contacts you and then what happens? He kept saying that he needed to be able to trust me, to be able to um, know that what I was saying was true and that I wasn't going to contact anybody like US authorities and so on. She's already alerted the authorities, but says she has no idea what they're doing. If I'd have met Laurie a couple of months earlier, I'd have found a mom who shared the custody of her kids with her ex, worked as an electrician and had a couple of dogs. Now, She's trying to negotiate with a man she thinks is a people smuggler to help her family escape from a terror group on the other side of the world. I have to go into a bubble when I talk to Florian. Sometimes I'm driving down the road. was in a doctor's office one time talking to him. I was on a job interview talking to him. Sleeping. He'll wake me up in the middle of sleeping. And I have to build a bubble around our conversation and still interact with the world outside. Because in this bubble... It is just him and myself. And the conversation outside cannot come into that. So when I'm I'm sitting around a lot of other Americans at the dog park, for example, I tend to not interact with those people because they won't understand. They they want to ask me questions about my dog. And here I have Florian asking me when I'm going to send money to save my niece and nephew. So I I try to disconnect as much as I can from the outside world when we're talking. Don't worry, inshallah, all will become good. And I will help her, inshallah. I figured that he had some sort of strategy, some sort of plan, that he was going to discuss the plan with me and I was going to activate the plan over here however I possibly could. After 
about a week of talking to Florian, he finally started to unravel the plan. The plan was to get Sam across to the Turkish border and from there to Slovakia. That was the generalized plan. Sorry, I have to go because I'm very tired. I'm very finished. I traveled and had many, many stress. His plan seems far-fetched, and Laurie starts to have her doubts about Florian. So, she asks him for some sort of proof that the family is still alive. And then she waits. And she waits. And days later, a picture arrives. On her phone, she shows me a dark, grainy photo of Matthew. He's holding a piece of paper, and I can just about make out the date. February 13th. And below it, in blue felt tip, he scrawled, I love you, Auntie Laurie. Florian also sends a recording of Sam. Hi, Laurie. Thank you for your help. Um, Today is the 13th of February, 2017. I hope the picture from Matthew is okay for you. The situation is getting worse day by day, and I hope you'll be able to get things done fast. I love you, and I'm, I'm so lucky to have you as a sister. At this point, I don't know how Sam ended up in Syria. If she chose to go there, or if she was taken there against her will by her husband, Musa, like she told Laurie in the email. Or if it's more complicated than that. I actually don't know much about Sam at all. So in Elkhart, Indiana, I'd go for a drive around her old neighbourhood, hoping I might learn something about the family. It's this pink house right here. Laurie shows me Sam and Musa's old house. It's a large wooden-clad property with a porch and a big fenced-in garden. How does it feel coming back to their house? I'm sad and I'm angry, and the two feelings interchange a lot. I just wish that I would see her smoking on the porch. You know, I drive by the house all the time. All the time I drive by the house, and I just hope that, you know, she's going to be there. I say goodbye to Laurie and I head off to meet some of Sam's old friends. When I ask about her, they say the kind of things you'd expect them to say. She's wonderful. Hard to describe her in one word. She's caring, thoughtful, loving, funny. She cracks jokes. She's got a very uh, dry sense of humor, sarcastic sense of humor. I love her. (laughs) She's great. Sam's best friend Cassie tells me about a time they went to the beach together. Cassie says the weather was beautiful and it was a great day. But on the way home, she mentioned to Sam that she'd never gone over 100 miles an hour in a car. She's like, well, we're going to change that. And she went on the highway and she booked it. So did she like adrenaline rushes then? Oh yeah, she loved it. She likes the adrenaline, you know. She rode motorcycles. Uh, She loved doing that kind of stuff. So I felt safe with her. She's the strongest woman I've ever met. And it's a similar story with another friend, Andrea. Who is she? She's an amazing, dear, incredible friend. Can you give me a sense of her as a person? Caring, loving, very giving. She was always worried about everybody else. She would do anything that she could to help anybody, even people she didn't know. What's she like as a mother? Amazing. 
She was always interacting with the kids, playing with them. They were very well cared for. Just, she was amazing with the kids. Do you think Sam would ever willingly choose to join ISIS? Absolutely not. And why? Why would she put her children in that position? Why would she put her family and friends back home in a position like that? Why would she support something that would put other people at risk? That's not Sam. But, I mean, some people will think she chose to go. There's no way she chose to go. No way she would put herself, especially her children, in harm's way in that way at all. She loved those kids with everything that she was, though her children were her life. And there's no way that she would ever do anything in any way that would put them in any kind of danger or put them at risk. Absolutely not. Sam's friends describe a good mom and a good person and a bit of a thrill seeker. Certainly not an ISIS supporter and not somebody to put her children in danger. And to start with, it's a similar story with Musar al-Hassani. He came to America from Morocco to study and eventually met Sam and moved in with her and Matthew, her son from a previous relationship. In 2012, Sam and Musa got married. She a Christian, he a Muslim, but neither particularly religious. The following year, they had a daughter. Not far from the house where they all lived is a corner store. While I'm there, someone comes in trying to sell an iPad, to which the guy behind the counter replies, Nah, man, that's too hot for me. That's Sonny. He knows Musa. Last time I saw him, he came in with a, a kid. I'm assuming it was Matthew, I think. He came in and got some candy for him, and got a pack of Marlboro lights, and he was always calm, and, and he'll leave like maybe 10, 15 hours extra just in case she comes in. She didn't have no money. He's referring to Sam. Never really seen anything besides him being like very polite and just, you know, sometimes when it's snowing outside, my sidewalk, the whole sidewalk over here will be plowed, you know what I mean? And later on I'll see him and he's like, oh, I did your sidewalk. He had like a little bobcat that plowed the snow and uh, I said, thank you, well, you want you want some, uh, some drink or something? He's like, no, 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 I'll get it later, whatever. Then he kept doing it for Basically, the whole winter. But Sonny says he does remember something odd. One day, Musa came by the store. He had something he wanted to show Sonny. He took him outside into a nearby alley and opened the trunk of his car. And inside were a few gold bars. He even let Sonny hold one of them. But Musa didn't say where they'd come from or why he had them, just that it was worth investing in gold. Sonny didn't know what to make of it. Can you describe Musa to me? Hmm. Um, he's handsome. He's handsome. He's handsome. Uh, Sam's friend Cassie used to work at Musa's family's business, a shipping company that sent packages all over the world. He's very strong, nice guy. He's always treated me very well. If I needed anything, he, he said that I didn't have to hesitate to ask. Um, he was always very sweet to me. He always asked, are you doing okay? And... If there was something bothering me, you know, I could talk to him. I didn't talk to him as much as I did Sam. Of course, you know, I'm a woman. And he was also more like, you know, you need to talk to Sam about certain things. <laughs> you know, there's just certain things he doesn't want to know. Was he quite traditional or...? I know he prayed sometimes, um, uh, but he was... He seemed very relaxed with things. 
He was the head of the household. That's, I mean, pretty much if he, if he wanted to do something, he did it, you know. But he seemed very normal. Not exactly what I was expecting. According to some of the people who knew him before ISIS, Musa, the guy who'd make his stepson build a suicide bomb, was good-looking, considerate, and ready to shovel snow at a moment's notice. But it seems there was another side to him. I know Sam had made a sign for their front yard. Well, she found out that he was cheating, and she made sure that the whole neighborhood knew about it, that she posted a sign saying my husband would rather uh, do cocaine and sleep with prostitutes than be with his family, which was huge, I mean. (laughs) Other people confirm Moose's reputation for paying for sex and disappearing for days on cocaine binges. And it's not uncommon for those who joined ISIS to have drug use or crime in their past. But there's nothing about Musa's life in Indiana, or Sam's, that hints at any kind of religious extremism. Or at least not that I can find. I decide to dig a bit deeper into Sam's past, hoping it will reveal something more. Well, Josh, this is our family home. Over here is the swing set where Samantha and Lori, we built for them back in 92 when we lived up in Arkansas. Here's one of our family animals taking a siesta. I'm in Oklahoma at Sam's parents' house to meet her dad, Rick. There's where I normally have my morning coffee. Come on in the house. Here's my wife, Lisa, doing the morning dishes. It takes a while to get used to Rick's pace. Slow, measured, very different from Laurie and Sam. Maybe that's the impact of a solitary life spent driving trucks across the country. He wears shirts with his name sewn onto the breast, Rick. He seems easygoing and friendly. But before we sit down to talk, he has a request. He hands me his vintage Eastern European rifle, complete with retractable bayonet, and points to a water bottle balanced on a tree. I guess he figures, I've been to Iraq, I must know how to handle a gun. But I miss. Twice. Then we continue. We'll walk on down this way. This is our laundry room. Here's some pictures, family pictures. And here's a picture of Samantha and Lori when they were little bitty. They're beautiful little children. We had a lot of fun together. Raised in a Christian home. Rick tells me he raised his daughters as Jehovah's Witnesses, but they both turned their backs on the religion when they left home. Here's a picture when they got a little older. That's Samantha. No, I gotta look at that again. I gotta put my glasses on. Samantha is a very outgoing person. Everybody loves her that meets her. In her younger days, she used to sneak out of the house at night. Was she a bit of a rebel growing up then? Yes, she was. Did you often have problems then? Uh, yeah. More with Sam than really with Lori. Sam has always been one to be in trouble. What would you describe her? What's she like? Samantha is a very outgoing person. People like her, 
but half the time you can't tell what the truth is and what not the truth. So you have to read between the lines. When I've met the parents of other people who ended up with ISIS, they normally defend their children and explain that they were manipulated or led astray. Hearing Rick question his daughter's honesty so openly catches me off guard. I'm sorry. She's my daughter. I love her. But anybody to put herself in that position and put their children in that position, I feel she went over there voluntarily. I feel sorry for the children. She's done to herself, but we need, we need to go over and get her out, there's no doubt, to try to get the children out. And that's exactly what Laurie is trying to do. Florian, Sam's people smuggler, seems like her only chance to get the kids home. He said that he wanted me to deliver some money to them in Syria so they could pay bribes to the governments and get passports and pay traffickers to get them across the borders. Clearly, Laurie can't go to Raqqa, but she says Florian has another way. He wants her to travel to Europe with $100,000. He told me then that I needed to actually fly to Germany and meet with someone and hand the money to that person. And that person would make a phone call to someone in Syria, confirming that they had the money in hand before they could do something. Even if Laurie could get hold of the money, she's worried about what she's getting herself into. So she's also talking to the FBI. Hello? Sorry to call you at home. Uh, I kind of just wanted to see what your take was on everything this morning. Yeah, we're working on some stuff. Um... That's one of their agents on the phone. Laurie says she briefs the FBI on everything Florian says and gives them permission to monitor her emails, texts and calls. Florian has no idea. The FBI are listening in. So what was your take on, on the messages he was sending you? I looked at all of them. I mean, what I've been doing today. Uh, they're very strange. Florian starts asking Laurie to send pictures of herself. And she feels like she has no choice. So Laurie spends hours agonising over which photo has the right sort of suggestive appeal to a sleazy guy who says he's a people smuggler. The conversation went from, I need to be able to trust you, to being very flirtatious. I felt very uncomfortable. I, I felt guilty. I was manipulating him to get what I wanted. I didn't want to do it. But after a couple of weeks, something dawns on her. The way Florian writes his messages and what he wants to talk about keeps changing she begins to suspect that Florian isn't just one person. It definitely raises the stakes when there are multiple people involved. I realised I had to change my game plan a little bit. I couldn't act the same with each person. I had to feel out who I was talking to on a daily basis. They structure their messages differently. One even puts a full stop after every word. And just a few lines becomes enough for Laurie to know which Florian she's dealing with. Florian one is the sleazy one. He wants pictures. He wants to know how life is like here. He wants to talk about 
more personal things like what he does at night when he's getting ready to go to sleep and so on. Florian, too, is all business. He just wanted to talk about money. Have you found the money? When are you going to get the money? When are we going to get this going? Why aren't you doing it? You need to do it right now. Have you talked to your parents? Have you talked to Matthew's dad about this? Very, very um, demanding. And Florian, three. The third person is a little softer, but he's kind of a mixture of both. She starts to doubt they're trying to help at all. I thought it was a trap. I thought this could turn out really bad. Laurie says the FBI asks her if she would consider going to Germany to hand over the money. She decides it's too dangerous. But the Florians are still messaging late into the night, so she can't sleep. And one day, she says they even call her mobile, and one of her kids answers by accident. As the stress continues to mount, Laurie says the FBI takes over the conversation and pretends to be her. But the Florians still want pictures. Hey, what's up? Hey, so uh, the reason for my call, uh, things are going pretty well with Florian. Um, I can't give you too many details, but he continually asks for photos of you, Lori. So (laughs) if you have any additional ones you want to email over to me or if you want to take some in the next couple of days and send them over, um, feel free to do that. That would be much appreciated. I guess I do have one question. Um, any, Any news on the kids? No, not really. Right. Um, Unfortunately, I mean, nothing really notable. Laurie does as she's asked. She sends the photos, but gets very little information back. I asked the FBI about all of this, but the Bureau says it can't comment. As far as Laurie knows, the FBI's conversation with the Florians stops. What Laurie thought was her best chance of getting Sam and the children back has gone just like that. And at a time when the situation in Raqqa is getting worse. The capital of a caliphate under siege. IS has weaponized fear. Laurie has no way of contacting Sam and the children. Islamic State is hemmed in here, almost surrounded, and they're fighting back. All she has to go on is what she hears in the news. Snipers, booby traps, suicide bombs. There are tens of thousands of people still in Raqqa, hostages essentially. IS has been killing anyone caught trying to leave. Hey, Lori. Um, I just want to say, keep making, uh, keep making your prayers for us. Sam manages to send Lori a couple of voice messages. You don't understand. Uh, here, <clears throat> instead of just leaving us be... All the time we hear the jets and bombs and it's a part of daily life here, you know. I don't know when I'll be able to talk to you next. It may be a while. Anyway, uh, here in just a minute, uh, I'm going to let the kids send you a message. You'll get that one just after me. I, I, hope I, I hope you know that I love you and I miss you so much. Hi, Lori. I miss you. And then remember that day whenever you took me to the, to the zoo? I miss you. That's Matthew. Hey, I love you. I love you. Hey, how are you? How are you? Hey, can't wait to see you. Can I see you? Hey, make me food. Make me food. Hey, I'm a poop head. I'm a poop head. That little girl is Laurie's niece, 
It's the first time she's heard her voice. And the crying baby is Laurie's nephew. Sam's had two more children while living in the ISIS caliphate. Anytime you don't hear from them for an amount of time, you think they're dead. You think the worst every time. Life is so fluid over there, it just, it changes in an instant. Then, in August 2017, six months after Sam first emailed Laurie. ISIS releasing a new video reportedly using a 10-year-old American boy to deliver a dire warning to President Trump. In the video, the boy speaks fluent English, appearing to read off a script. The child saying he and his mother moved to Syria two years ago. ISIS has often exploited children in its propaganda. It's even filmed them apparently carrying out executions. But this is the first time the extremists have used a child they say is American. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast, I'm Not a Monster, to get the full 10 episodes as they come out. The next episode is available right now. Search for the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can read more about our investigation at frontline.org. Thanks for listening.